Network. Connected. MIDI session. Running. MIDI show control. Confirmed. DMX interface. Connected. Light control. Confirmed. Ethernet. Active. Audio interface. Active and engaged. Arduino unit. In range. Bluetooth remote pair. Connected. OSC IP. Active. We're ready. Start the queue. Featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, Alex Sparks, and Mark Nizer. Hey everybody, welcome to the queue. We're uh, we got our skeleton crew up here tonight. Uh, hey Andy, and hey Joshua, how are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you doing, Mark? Good. How was your your hiatus? You're off uh, making money, which I yeah, I agreed not uh, to do well, that. theoretically making money. Uh, I've been doing. Uh, I've been designing a bunch of shows in a row. I've been doing some lighting, some sound, and some projections. Now I have a little bit of time off, so it's good to be back. Uh, I got to play with QLab's projection mapping tools. Uh, really for the first time. So that was a cool learning experience. And I figured out uh, right at the end of tech that I was sort of doing it wrong. I didn't realize that the dimensions of a surface cannot exceed the physical dimensions of the projector raster. So I had built a surface that was larger than the resolution of the projector because it was a curved surface and I figured I would just warp it all to fit but it doesn't really work like that. The longest dimension should have been the width of the projector, and then the height should have been scaled down proportionally, which is not how I did it. By the time I sort of realized, uh, I wrote into uh, figure 53, and, and they were like, no, here, here's what you're doing wrong. Uh, and that was on like the last day of tech. So I, I didn't really have time to rebuild the whole uh, surface. Hmm. So I just cheated it by making the mask file smaller. Uh, to match the proper dimensions, and you know that worked out all right. And feathering the edges or something to make it yeah. not be so sharp. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah, I mean, I would always, I, I always feather masks a little bit anyway. It just looks nicer. And uh, in this case, um, this physical screen, these panels of fabric were assembled by the actors during the show. So there was a little bit of variability anyway with where exactly how they're going to hang and how exactly the actors are, are going to rig them. So there was some leeway and some feathering built in intentionally just for that reason. Huh. How interesting. What, how, when, where, why. FAQ the Q. You've got questions. We've got long and detailed technical answers. I've been researching getting an LED projector it appears that some of the lumens are extremely bright. And I want to know, what is the difference between LED brightness and regular brightness? I have been frothing to get something much brighter than what I have. I was looking for something in the 5,000 lumen range. And I bought a LED 4,500 lumen projector from China. 280 bucks. It showed up. What? It's Does it work? It's literally like a kid's toy. Uh, it's so dim. You can't use it in any... I mean, I turned it on next to my one of my you know 20 Dells that I have here. And those are 2,000 lumens. And it instantly wiped it out. You couldn't even see it in the daytime when it was on. How can you say it's 4,500 lumens? Because And the reason is, is because LED lumens and other lumens are different. Not true. That they li they lied in the marketing. What I read somewhere is that uh, they're measuring lumens differently somehow. That's how they're able to no, say that. No, so 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 here's here's the here's the reality. There are two different things going on. I suspect that the specs for that projector 
are an outright lie <laughs> that there is no way that you could use that projector and get 4,500 ANSI lumens. I would believe that. You can stare directly into the lens, I mean, right up to your eye, and you're like, at night, in total darkness, it was, it's barely, it's usable. But yeah. useless in the daytime. I'm so, and, but the cool thing is you can turn it on instantly, no cooling cycle, instant on, instant off. So it could be like a, you know, a motion-activated light in your house or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's sure. the only way I can think to use it. But the thing is, that is, is definitely what you're looking for when you're buying a projector. <laughs> right. Throwing so, away $300. That's why you have to be really careful about specs. Because Lumen, to say um, a lot of audio people know that, you know, if somebody says, oh, that speaker can do 100 decibels. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Right, they could, they could yeah. be bad-sounding decibels. Uh, it, well, and it, but it doesn't even tell you how loud it is because decibels are a comparison. Right. So 100 decibels reference to what? Okay, 100 dB SPL one meter away. Okay, now I know right. what that – now I at least know how loud it is. Well, Lumen is a very – I mean, it's a – it has a scientific meaning, but in in the way – projector marketing department projector company marketing departments throw that word around yeah. you have to be really careful yeah so you're gonna see two specs which i think are meaningful and if it's not one of these two i would ignore it completely and assume that it's just marketing bullshit and so either you're correct. gonna see ANSI lumens or you're gonna see lumens of color light output those are both meaningful specs but they say different things. So ANSI lumens is measuring peak brightness. It's how bright is white. And what that means is in a projector that makes white by mixing red, green, and blue, like an LCD projector that has three LCD panels, mm -hmm. then that really tells you everything you need to know about that projector's brightness. When you deal with single-chip DLP projectors, they have a color wheel. And they're doing red, green, and blue in sequence. And some of them do other colors. In addition, some have a white, some have more colors on the single chip. So in each frame... It flashes red, then it flashes green, then it flashes blue, then it flashes white, then it flashes maybe something else. Wow. Um, and what that means is they can do tricks that make peak white brighter than the total of red, green, and blue. Hmm. And so if you put a 5,000 ANSI lumen LCD projector next to a 5,000 lumen 5000 ANSI lumen DLP single chip DLP projector. You put them next to each other and you put real world content through them. Typically the DLP projector will look noticeably dimmer yeah. than the LCD. Lumens of color light output measures the white, the peak brightness of white when you add red, green and blue. And so that's the true, quote-unquote, brightness across the whole spectrum. 
And in general, companies that make LCD projectors and companies that make three-chip DLPs, both, so both of those technologies are always using red, green, and blue and nothing else. Mm-hmm. They tend to specify lumens of color light output, and it'll be the same as their ANSI lumens. Manufacturers of single-chip DLP projectors, I've never seen one specify color light output because it makes them look bad. (laughs) Because their color light output is maybe a third lower than their ANSI lumen number. Well, I should have known when the manual was only in Chinese. I mean, I accidentally was screwing around with a menu, and I, I, I accidentally switched the menu into Chinese, and I, I couldn't figure out how to get it back to English. Um, yeah, and return it if you can. Well, that's the problem. Hundred dollars shipping, hundred dollars back. I'm it's not even worth it. Yeah, I'm just going to set it up for. I, I haven't figured out what to do with it yet, but it's it's instant on, so I'm going to figure out something to do with it here. I keep looking at the office, thinking, what can I do with this crazy thing, but. Yeah. So on the subject of instant on, I'm ordering a, a couple of Sony's new laser projectors. Ooh, tell us about um, that. So there some people will say that these are not quote unquote true laser projectors because the light that comes out the lens is not laser light. There are some projectors that are being prototyped and maybe even being installed in some very large cinema, digital cinema settings, that what comes out of the lens is actually laser light. So basically the way this works is it's a blue laser, which, is, which shoots into a spinning phosphor disk. And the blue laser basically just provides energy for the phosphor disk to make it glow. And the combination of the blue light that comes through the disc and the glow of the disc makes a really, really good light source. And then that goes through a standard three LCD projector path. Um, And in fact, the the projectors that Sony's selling, uh, there are very similar models to the laser projectors that use standard lamps. That really it's primarily the the actual light generating engine that's the difference and um, is it is the advantage brightness um it, brightness per power right okay efficiency they're very efficient they're maybe three or four seconds from pressing the power button to full brightness wow instant off no cool down right they don't generate a lot of heat so they run really quiet you know, that I had a couple of unusual things that I wanted. Um, the, the most unusual being that I wanted an HD-SDI input. I was just telling Mark I wanted to talk about SDI a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, the future, right? Depends on who you ask. A lot of people think really HD-based T is the future, doing it all over what amounts to fancy network cable. But I'm not ready to go there. I'm using an SDI plant at this point. All of my long runs are going to be SDI. Coax. Yeah, and I got tons of that left over from when I returned my Dish network. Ah, uh, but is it SDI rated? <laughs> See, sure it's, it's it's got to be 
HDSDI rated coax. Only if you're in the union, right? No, it's like <laughs> if you want if you want a picture on the other end. <laughs> okay. All I right. do uh, projection design for a lot of very low budget theater. I mean, most most of the places I work are using VGA for everything, um, and. If we're not going super long distances, I'll try to use HDMI. I really wanted to get some SDI cables and play with them because I think they have a lot of advantages over HDMI. The big one being the distance that you can run it. And, and there's no HDCP problems. Right, exactly. No, because it uh, doesn't support HDCP at all. What yeah. is HDCP for the people? High definition content protection, uh, which is a digital rights management thing to prevent you from doing things like playing copyrighted movies into your projector. Well, it's not really to prevent you from playing copyrighted movies into your projector. It's supposed to stop you from copying the copyrighted movie. Every device in the chain from the source to the display has to speak HDCP. And if it, if it can't confirm HDCP handshakes saying, yep, protected, 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 all the way down the line of however many devices that signal goes through, then it won't display that content. Yeah, it just shoots you in the foot, though. It's so ridiculous. Get that level of protection, and then stuff doesn't work that should work. And Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. the thing, but HDMI is a consumer thing. So it's, you know, it's a standard for consumer electronics, uh, which is one of the reasons I think it's really problematic in a professional context. But I don't really know anything about SDI or HDSDI, um, other than that it costs slightly more than HDMI, Can which is why I sort of haven't gone VGA there yet. Can you to a VGA projector with a converter somehow to make the long run? That's part of what I'm doing, that I still have to feed VGA in some venues that I work in, but I'm going to feed it with a converter box. So it's going to be HDSDI up unto where it has to be VGA. Right. And the reason I'm doing that is because I got to a point that we needed to buy a whole lot of cable. And so what kind of cable do I buy? Ethernet. You know, you can do most of it over Ethernet, but that has its own problem. Or do I buy VGA, the old standard? Well, that makes no sense and it's super expensive. HDMI isn't reliable over long distances, so that doesn't really work. So that leaves me with SDI as something that makes sense. Hmm. Do you ever do DVI, or is that just sort of dead? Pretty much never do DVI. I mean, DVI is no good over long distances. It's it's DVI is is super easy to convert to HDMI. They're, for all intents and purposes, kind of the same thing. What I'm doing is basically going all SDI, and I have a bunch of converter boxes. So whatever I need to come out of somebody's laptop, VGA, HDMI, DisplayPort. I've got the right adapters and cables to turn that into SDI, run that to typically my switcher as SDI, and then SDI out of the switcher to the projectors. And if I have to, I'll convert back to HDMI or to VGA at the projector. And uh, if you were going to send to SDI from QLab, would you use a Blackmagic device or uh, some other kind of converter? Yeah, I'd probably use the Blackmagic converters. So instead of using whole external interface, you'd come out as HDMI and then convert it. Yeah. All right. Very, very interesting. It's a lot of information. 
Our guest today is Jeremy Hopgood. He is a tenured associate professor at Eastern Michigan University, where he created the Entertainment Design and Technology Program, one of the only one of its kind in the country. He has designed scenery, lighting, projections, and sound for theaters throughout the Southeast and Midwest. He worked at the Williamstown Theater Festival in its Tony Award-winning season and is an artistic associate at Michigan Shakespeare Festival. Mr. Hopgood is a long-standing member of USITT. Welcome to the queue. Is that the Illuminati? I, I don't. I honestly don't know what that is because I'm I'm the non-tech person on this thing. What is that? Yeah, Do you guys keep talking it's about the United it? States Institute for Theater Technology. Okay, it's a an organization that's basically set up for furthering the idea of theater technology. We have annual conventions. I'm actually at one right now. It's a, a week-long conference in which there are workshops and professional development for educators and chances for students to get get out there and network and get jobs and things like that. Well, Alex Sparks is doing that right there. He's one of our co-hosts, and he is at he is at USITT right now. Oh, great. Let me introduce you to Andy Dolph. Hello. Hi, Andy. And Dave Mickey. Hello. My fellow castmates. So you literally wrote the book on QLab. What, what prompted the book besides no manual? Well, um, you kind of hit the, the nail on the head there. I had been, um, like most of you guys from listening to your podcast, um, I've been kind of a longtime user and uh, really happy with the the amount of one-on-one discussion you could get with like Chris and the rest of the guys at at Figure 53, but kind of surprised that someone hadn't just done the book at some point. Um, So I was... um, I was talking to the people at Focal Press about the possibility of doing a textbook, and, and the QLab text is the first thing that came to mind. I got in touch with Chris, um, and he thought, hey, that's, that's really an interesting idea. And um, it, was, you know, it was important for them for it to be uh, well understood that you know, this was my book, this is not um, something that is written by Figure 53, um, but they were so gracious in their time and assistance in helping me with it. In fact, at the time, uh, QLab 3 wasn't out. So I had actually talked to Chris, and he said, we've got this new version of it coming out. Um, If you want, you can be one of our beta testers, and we can kind of let you see behind the scenes as you're getting this textbook together. And it worked really well because it timed out that the book came out really shortly after QLab 3 dropped. Um, so it was just kind of kismet. How was working with, with Chris and those guys? I mean, I don't even believe he's a real person. They keep saying he exists and <laughs> you can speak with him on the phone. I mean, I've only reached him through email. I, I believe he is a sentient computer in a closet somewhere. No, that's, that's not true, but, uh, I could see how you would think that since he has all the answers that you need pretty much any given time. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> this week I actually, um, I met Sam and Andy in person uh, wow. for the first time. And it was one of those kind of things where we, um, it was like, Oh, and there's your face. Great. Wow. Uh, but no, actually they, they were wonderful. I, I sent lots of questions their way. Um, uh, they served as our, uh, technical editor actually. So I had, I had sent questions their ways. They, they looked at it kind of, um, the, the problem with writing a, a book about software in its beta form is that it's constantly changing. And that's probably, I mean, you guys see that in terms of QLab. There is an update for it that happens pretty regularly. And with each update, you see the little 
packet that tells you this has been added, this has been changed. And so you can kind of imagine what that process is like. So you're going along writing a book about the information and then between one beta and the next, some, like maybe the entire interface for this function changes. <laughs> so it was, it was really essential having them on board. I can't imagine what it would have been like not being able to have insight from them. Did you keep having to go back and rewrite stuff as you went along? I did, yeah. It almost it got to a point where I kind of would just make notations of things that I knew that I would have to revisit to make sure that... Because I knew when the final edition was going to be coming out, mostly. And I had plenty of time between when that was happening and when um, my manuscript had to be off to the editor. So I, I basically sort of highlighted sections that I knew I would have to come back, and, and that seemed to be kind of the most effective way to do that. I have to say I was one of... The ones that pre-ordered your book as soon as I saw it go up for sale. Oh, thank you. And um, <laughs> so I was very excited, and I actually teach Q Lab, and I recommend it to all my students. So oh, I have great. It actually, sitting right in front of me as we speak. I love hearing and, that. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of classes specifically for Q Lab, but there's so many classes that a Q Lab textbook would would help with. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I find hard teaching sound or show control. There's not very many books out there. But so I was thrilled to see when your book came out. And yeah, it, it, the pre-order came out, what, fairly soon after QLab 3 came out. So I was really impressed that you um, put it together so quickly. Yeah, it was one of those fortuitous things that, I mean, it never could have happened had I not just been at that right place at the right time and talking with the guys at Figure 53 and I'll be forever grateful for that. Why don't they have a manual? You know, I'm not certain. Um, I, I feel like a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there is such a robust user community. Mm -hmm. um, and so many of the things are handled really well through their website, and especially on version 3. Um, lots of the videos and, and things like that that they have added. Um, but I've never really talked on that with them about... Um, about why they didn't go in that direction. I, I was very grateful um, after the book launched. They, they do have a link on the Figure 53 website now, actually, to, to sort of redirect people to, to buy it. And I, mm -hmm. I thought that was very... Um, That's great. Well, I'm... humbling that they would do that. So I'm super excited about reading it. I mean, <laughs> I used to read, you know, Playboy, but now I get more excited about <laughs> reading a complete tech manual on... <laughs> OSC packets and um, you know I, I, my wife makes me read aloud from the forums when she can't sleep at night and she goes out like a light <laughs> but, so for yeah for me the the benefit of putting it together is that I you know I am a teacher and I sort of I tried to think about it from the perspective of how I teach my class um, and and my students I have a, a great young entertainment design and technology program um, but it is, it's not like a BFA program. Um, it's, it's kids who are coming to this many times, not with um, an immense amount of background. So you have to cover a wide range of ideas. And so most of my classes, like a lot of tech classes, are, are very um, project-driven. So for me, I really wanted the book to be project-driven. And within each chapter, there's lots of projects that you can work on and they're also um, they're all included on the companion website. So uh, you know, unlike how we, we used to do it in, back in the day with the, uh, a, a companion DVD-ROM in a slipcase in the right. back or or a CD, 
Um, now you can basically go to their website and you can download um, entire workspaces um, and packet files to be able to work along with a project and and see how it works in real time, which um, that's the, the feedback that I've got that has been the best um, in terms of reviews is that people like the ability to be able to work through projects on it. Absolutely. There's nothing better than to have a project to learn something. With any kind of tool, if you want to learn to use the tool, you have to have something you're trying to use it for. Right. Because if you just set out to try to learn the tool right. without something in mind, it, it just doesn't work. More complicated the tool, and when it's something like QLab or like a programming language, it even more so, you know, it's not that hard if you want to learn how to use a table saw to come up right. with <laughs> enough of a project to learn how to use the table saw. But with something like QLab, which is so deep in so many different directions, if you really want to learn deeply into any of its functions, you have to be doing a project to do that. I do find it mind-blowing when I'm sitting around in a show going, oh, I wish I could do this. And then that night after the show, I sit down and there is a way. You know, I, I did a tutorial online, a video tutorial the other day on the target queue, wrote this whole thing out, had to re-record it a bunch of times, uh, finished the video, so proud of myself, looked great, watched the video, looked back at the QLab file and was like, I don't need a target queue for this. <laughs> went back in, deleted the target queue, found a much better way to do it with just a group, a grouping and some wait commands, deleted the entire, the entire YouTube video and just did a tutorial on how to use the wait command. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But that is one of the things that I've always found that people find, um, you know, some beginners find it frustrating and some people find it amazing. I'm in the amazing camp that there are multiple ways to do things in QLab. Right. Um, there is no one set way for you have to do this this way. Um, because the, the way that they've programmed the software was with the mentality of, we don't know how you're going to use it. We just want to set it up so that you can use it and you tell us, you know, how you're going to use it. I, I'm constantly amazed on the, on the forum that someone will put something up and, and the guys are kind of like, oh, yeah, we never really intended you to be able to, to right. use it in exactly that way, and we're very happy that it's working in exactly that way for you. Right. Um, so, you know, exactly. There, you know, you could do a group queue. You can set things up with pre-weights, post-weights. You can link um, however you want to do it that works best in your given situation, um, which can make it difficult for beginners to wrap their heads around because – there are so many ways to do it, but after a while, you kind of look at it and go, okay, well, this is nice. It's, it's really custom made for the way that I would like to use it. I've just never seen a tool that had so many toys and options and, and creativity in it. I, we actually are, we have a Q quiz we do, and so we have a network gaming interface that's all built in QLab. Oh. <laughs> so we can all ring in and uh, it keeps score and all this stuff. So it's really a, a gaming platform. I don't know where the social control thing came in. You should probably change the name of your book to QLab3 Gaming Software. <laughs> We're going to have to really explain that game engine that you came up with, Mark, because it's, it's so cool, and it would have never in a million years occurred to me to do that. <laughs> so what do you think is missing from QLab? I don't know that I could uh, 
pinpoint anything that comes to mind. I mean, pretty much everything that I that I would like to use it for is there. In all honesty, I would say that I think down the road, the thing that could be developed a little bit more um, is how it interfaces with lighting um, in terms of that being built into the software. But it's so it's so different than than how it was initially set out. Um, you certainly can control other lighting software. Right. Um, but I could see a wide market of, of people who would be interested in being able to use QLab in a standalone fashion to be able to say, send some DMX controls and, and things along those lines that are, that are not currently, um, you know, quite, quite there on that. But um, I'm not exactly sure that that's where they want to go with it. Um, that sounds I amazing. Know. I would love that. And, and, you know, a drag and drop sort of visualization program and, you know, moving things around and, yeah, that'd be very cool. It would add a lot of complexity based on watching how Figure 53 works that I think they would have to feel like there was a way to have most of that complexity or all of that extra, extra complexity stay hidden if you weren't using it. Right. Uh, before the, before they would consider implementing something like that as a feature. And I think that that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you use the target queue? And what can I use it for? I have to do a tutorial next week. <laughs> um, I really don't use it quite as much anymore as as I used to in, in sort of earlier versions of it. Yeah, it's been it's kind of been replaced, right? A little bit, yeah. And But I, I think that, um, again, it's, you know, it's still there for people who want to use it in that way. And, and I think that's, it's great. Uh, one of the, the great things that I found about the beta testing of this, and, and as the program has continued along, is that they've added function to it. And then sometimes there were things that were taken away for a little bit that they decided really needed to come back and did, because I think that there's a nice community interaction that's happening there. Yeah, um, I'm that I really like. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I really want to do a QLab convention where we can all meet each other and, and have demos of what things we do and look at everyone's, you know, workspaces and, oh, you did it that way. I never would have thought about, about it. I, I wanted to do it this way. Uh, can you imagine just all of us nerding around together and hitting the bar and I don't know. It is my fantasy. <laughs> the Q show convention. Yep. Yep. I'm ready. And I, I bought us, uh, we've been joking about our onesies we're going to wear because we're going to look just like the guys from uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> As an educator, sure. I'm interested in your program you created. The Entertainment Design and Technology Program? The, the Entertainment Design and Technology Program in Eastern Michigan is set up as a Bachelor of Arts. It's not a BFA-style program purposefully um, because what we want our students to do is to be able to kind of tailor-make their own multidisciplinary experience. So it's it's rooted in the theater program and the foundation courses that the students are getting. Some are things like three-dimensional design over in the art program. And then some of our basic core theater classes that are, are pretty common at almost any design program around the country or theater program. Outside of that, so the, the student comes in and, and you say, uh, so what, what do you want to do with your life? And from an early point in their degree planning, it gets them kind of thinking about their trajectory. So let's say that, that we have a student that wants to do lighting design. I think one of the things that's a little flawed in the way that we've taught designers 
in theater for a long time is that we we don't acknowledge that most of our designers, let's say you, you get an MFA in design, you go out into the field. At the highest level of professional design, most of these people are working outside of the theater quite a bit. You know, you might mm-hmm. be working in dance, you might be working in theme parks, you might be working in television film. I know a lighting designer who does almost exclusively work doing political rallies and things mm-hmm. like that. Really, you can kind of create your own career as a designer in so many ways. So what we wanted to say to the students coming in is think about what you can do in addition to theater, because the reality of the economy that we're in is that if you have more marketable skills, the chances are that you're going to get better opportunities doing interesting kind of design work outside of theater too. So we require that the students have a minor from a pre-selected list of minors around the campus that could relate to interesting things in terms of their career goals, like minoring in art or interior design, or graphics, there's a a pretty decent list. And also, if a student can make a convincing argument as to what they would like to minor for their interests, for instance, we have um, a student who's interested in makeup. For her, she wanted to get a chemistry minor because she believed that that was going to work directly into the idea of of makeup and the work that she was doing. And it, it was a very convincing argument. So she is an ED&T major and a chemistry minor. And then we have what are called our cognate electives. So students take a certain number of courses that are from a, a pre-selected list of classes around campus in things like arts and design. Also, we add in things like business. So one of the big things on our cognate list and our minor list is giving students opportunity to, say, minor in business or in entrepreneurship, acknowledging that You know, a lot of designers get out there in the real world and don't have the first notion about how to keep a business running, but they've got a, you know, they want to run a design firm. It's an opportunity to let kids really kind of explore and create their own education. And I found that, I mean, they're so much more interested in it for the fact that they've got this ownership of it. It's just not this this list that someone gives you and says, here, take all these classes and then you'll get this piece of paper. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Amazing. I want to go back to college. <laughs> <laughs> that would have changed my life. I, 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 I hear so many parents say that. That's actually, um, I feel like we're one of the programs that parents really like, which is, it's so weird for me working in the arts because I've always had to do the hard sell to parents. Like, don't worry, your kids are not going to starve. <laughs> um, and they're looking at this like, oh, you mean my kid could also learn about business while doing this so that there's a practical component to this and you're actually talking about the real world oh i feel much better about that yeah (laughs) there's so many interesting posts you put on your blog as well you have one recently about women in design and technology and i Uh gotta say i'm consistently stunned at how few women i run into when i'm touring typically it's a, a lighting designer is is uh the ladies that i work with they're they're the ladies getting up on the the lift and going up and tweaking the lights for me, which in some ways I think is almost uh, a little surprising sometimes. How, how can we change that? I have three daughters uh, yeah, and a wife. I've, and uh, I always say I've got uh, two daughters now. One just recently came here uh, into this world. So uh, it's, wow. it's something that's kind of near and dear to my heart too. Right. Um, I mean, how do we inspire them and, and get them out there, you know? You know, I've got to tell you, in my program, 
demographically speaking, I've got a, a vast majority of females in my program, which is, I'm not sure if it's something that we're doing or if it's just a demographic fluke that's happening right now. At first, I, I, I was a little bit surprised, and, it, and it's not in any, any given area. I think that we've kind of reached, or at least I'd like to believe we reached a point that it's becoming less of an anomaly, and I'm glad for that. But it is, it is a difficult thing. My wife is a sound designer um, and composer. Also, uh, you know, a mother of two children and the work that she does and balancing her career with raising our kids is, I mean, it's nothing short of breathtaking. Oh, yeah. I always think that, uh, you know, in any way that we can find ways to make sure that there's a good representation and that, um, I mean, most important that that we are inclusive and not exclusive, Mm -hmm. because for so long it truly has been treated as as the boys game and i think that that is it it comes back to attitude i'm so happy to see many of the just the wonderful ladies in in my design and technology program they they don't live at least in our neck of the woods are not living in a world in which they're made to feel um out of place and and i think that you know that will only continue to improve within time. Uh, I certainly hope so. I'm in California right now, and in my program, I currently have more female designers than males. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, life experiences and different perspectives. I enjoy having a, a wide range of people in my shop, too. It's it's kind of fun because there are occasionally people who will try to, oh, you know, I can't lift that. Oh, come on. You, you can lift whatever you want. And she's like, yeah, I was just trying to get you to do it. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to play that game. Nice. Come on. We're all the same in here. I'm going to treat you exactly the same, which means you need to lift that. <laughs> Wait till you have teenage daughters. Yeah. I always say with four women, women in my house, someone's always crying, and it's usually me. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah, right. You're, you have girls as well. Yep, I have all girls. If people want to get the book, is there a place that is more in, advantageous to you? It is certainly listed on Amazon.com um, and on any number of different um, um, websites right now. But... Uh, Focal Press gets it directly from the source. I've got an, a second book that's coming out in October on dance production uh, with Focal Press as well. Well, I'm very inspired by the book, and I love reading your blog. I think you have a lot of interesting information to share. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope yeah. you guys have Thank a great Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Enjoyed it. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Once again, had a great time on the podcast, and I'll leave you guys with a quote. The art challenges the technology, and the technology inspires the art. John Lasseter. You've been listening to The Q. The Q is produced by Active Media Group in association with The Q Show cast. Music for The Q was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11.